One of the things I always feel about transport, which makes it really interesting area to work in, is that almost every one of us, unless we never leave our house, which of course has been true in the last year, um, is you, you, you know you encounter transport policy issues every single day. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week has been focusing on transport for nearly a decade. The Shadow Rail Minister under Ed Miliband, Shadow Transport Secretary under Jeremy Corbyn, and Chair of the Transport Select Committee for three years, Lillian Greenwood has been in the front line of transport policy. Indeed, her focus on the sector meant that, like the other attendees at February's bus summit last year, she was one of the very first people in Britain to have to self-isolate during the COVID pandemic. She joins me today to talk about politics, transport and where they overlap. Lillian Greenwood, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Delighted to be here, Thomas. Well, what, what was it like back in the very beginning of February when we all, none of us really heard of COVID? It seemed like something that was happening very far away and suddenly you were at the front line of it. Oh, it was really, really strange because I got a contact to say, uh, you know, you were at this bus summit, but don't worry if you feel all right, don't worry about it. Uh, and then one of my colleagues who was also there was saying, I've cancelled all my surgeries, I've cancelled all my meetings. And I was just like, really? OK, I better do it. Obviously, the benefit of hindsight, that looks eminently sensible. Um was really weird. And, and I kept getting loads of press going, what's it like having to self-isolate? Well. You know, how hard is it to sit at home? <laughs> we <laughs> all subsequently learned. Well, no, well, you know, doing it for a week was not so bad back then. Now, um, we've all had the best. It all feels so brilliantly pointless now, doesn't it, though, that you know, people like you are self-isolating because you came into contact with one person. Probably by that point, hundreds of people had it. Who knows? But it, yeah. it feels so bizarre with hindsight that we were chasing these one one, one person around the country like that, you know. Yeah, well, we just didn't appreciate quite well, we didn't appreciate the situation, but yeah, there we go. So it was, it was your work on the Transport Select Committee that took you to the bus summit. So I suspect a lot of people don't fully understand exactly what a select committee is. They have a very specific role in the, in the political system. Tell me a bit about what a select committee is and what your role as chair of it was. So um, the select committee um, system exists in order to scrutinise the work of government departments and their executive agency. So in the case of uh, the Transport Committee, it's not just the Department for Transport, it's all those agencies like Network Rail, like Highways England, like the uh, Civil Aviation um, Authority, and to hold them and to hold ministers uh, to account. It's a cross-party committee. At the start of a parliament, the chairs are elected by all members of the House, so not just by, um, so as the, the chairs are allocated according to party, and that depends on the relative strengths on the party. And uh, as you as you will know, transport had had always been a, a Labour chair, and it's flipped to being a Conservative chair in this Parliament. Um, so the chairs are elected by all members of the House, which I think gives them the sort of separate a bit of independence and mandate. Uh, and then the makeup of the rest of the committee again is in in line with. The House. So, of course, it has a government majority on uh, select committees. But I think by the virtue of being cross party, obviously, in an ideal world, uh, members of the committee and there are 11 members on the, on the transport committee um, 
sort of try and leave their party politics at the door and operate with a degree of independence to uh, to hold ministers and uh, the heads of those organisations and uh, other organisations to account. Um, they operate by having, largely by having inquiries, um, and that's entirely a meta, matter for the select committee uh, itself. It's independent. It can decide what things it wants to scrutinise. And sometimes those will be things that are very topical. So, for example, um, the Transport Committee looked into the collapse of the East Coast Mainline franchise. It looked into the debacle around the rail timetable meltdown in uh, May 2018. Um, obviously, it's been looking into uh, the impact of the pandemic on transport, but sometimes it'll be kind of forward looking. Um, so work around uh, decarbonisation of the railway, work around micro mobility um, you know, it, it can it, it, and it can range uh, between the two, and, and those are in, those inquiries. And of course, really importantly, uh, is the select committee is supported by uh, what are colloquially known as clerks, but there's a whole team of uh, house staff, and that's really important. They're, they're employed by Parliament, not by the civil service, so they're independent. Um, who you know help us to make all that work happen. And I'm guessing it's the clerks who actually literally sit down and type out the reports. I'm assuming it's not you sort of in, in, your, in, in your bedroom kind of in the evening typing it out word by word. Um, and I, one of the things I often wonder is, you know, they will have the job of taking all the various thoughts that have come in and writing a report out of it. But, you know, politicians, you know, present company undoubtedly accepted are often not short of ego. How on earth do you actually get an agreement on specific messages and reports and wording in an environment like a select committee with so many different people who've all come into politics because they've got something they want to say? So, I mean, one of the things about uh, select committees and one of the things that I find most valuable about them is, of course, they're evidence-based, is that when you're writing those reports, and you're absolutely right, of course, it is um, it is the clerk's group or the inquiry manager who will produce a draft um, for consideration first by the chair and then when the chair is happy with the draft then it'll go to the wider committee for uh, debate but um, yeah you'll be you'll be developing ideas about what you want to go in that report as you go along so after evidence sessions people will be sharing views about what we thought was really significant to come out of it um, thinking about further questions to ask. And obviously, generally, the way it works is you'll be hearing a variety of evidence, perhaps from stakeholders, from academics, from, um, you know, bodies with a, a, an interest, uh, and then hearing from the minister uh, at the end. That tends to be the way that the uh, inquiries um, work. And then they'll and then the chair will definitely want to uh, discuss what their conclusions are and what they want to see in the report before the clerk drafts it. But then uh, the meetings where it actually comes in front of the committee, um, sometimes the chair's report, the, the draft report, becomes the, the report of the committee with relatively few uh, amendments. Uh, and sometimes the process of getting from a draft report to a, a report that's agreed by consensus with the committee, if that happens, and that, that has happened generally in, in recent years on the Transport Committee, uh, can be quite tortuous. And there can be a lot of discussion of potential uh, amendments, and uh, which might be additions or changes of focus or changing just words here and there, which can obviously be very significant. And, and it can be quite a debate and quite difficult uh, sometimes. 
And you were chair of the Transport Select Committee during the period between the 2017 election and the 2019 election. I, probably the most rancorous period in British political history since, yeah, well, I don't know, what do you want to go back to? The Corn Laws, the Civil War? I mean, God knows. It, 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 is, it was an extraordinary time to, for, for the workings of Parliament. How did, did, that, did that stop at the door of the Select Committee or did that affect the work that you were trying to lead in scrutinising, you know, a policy area that you know, was comparatively, compared to many others, untouched by Brexit, but in this extraordinary environment of Parliament at that time? Um, I mean, in many ways, I, I remember thinking that the Transport Select Committee was like a, a safe haven away from some of the madness uh, that was going on um, around us. Now, obviously, because during that period of 2017, 2019, the House was very finely balanced, it also meant that the Transport Committee uh, was incredibly equally um, set between Labour and Conservative, with um, uh, a member from, uh, you know, members from the smaller parties as well. Um, and I actually think we we worked together pretty effectively uh, as a team. Um, uh, maybe maybe sometimes you avoid some of the areas where you just know you're going to fall out. But but actually, one of the good things about being on a cross-party select committee is that people come with very different kind of starting points, different backgrounds, different views. Um, and I think that makes for really good scrutiny because when you're questioning witnesses, obviously you come at it from a different perspective based on what your own experience is and, and you know, the issues in my constituency might be quite different to the issues in uh, in colleagues' constituencies. And that's still that's still the case now. And you have spent basically pretty much the entire time you've been in Parliament uh, scrutinising <laughs> the Department for Transport. Um, but you've done it in two very different jobs. You were Shadow Transport Secretary, um, before that Shadow Rail Minister, so you've been shadowing um, the department, and then you've been Chair of the Select Committee scrutinising the department. What, was it, what were the differences between those two roles? You know, if, you were, if you were mentoring a, a junior politician, what would, you, what would you advise them to go and do, uh, having, done, having done both? Um, so obviously, so I was a shadow transport minister. I, be, I was first um, asked to join the transport team in 2011, which was actually covering local transport, including um, buses. So and I kind of was in the shadow transport team from 2011 through to um, June 2016. So, yeah, much longer, actually, as a shadow minister than um, as a select committee um, chair. And I did have a brief period when I was completely not doing that at all. And I was on the education uh, select committee, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, I mean, I think that they're quite different things. Um, you know, the, the 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 good thing about being um, obviously a shadow minister is that you're starting, is that you're creating policy. You know, that's one of the really important uh, roles. Is not only holding government's account. Obviously, that's really important as an opposition uh, spokesperson. But it's also thinking about what should your own parties. Um, policy be when you get into government and it was pretty devastating when we felt like we'd spent a lot of time building up policy uh, in 2015 to have no opportunity to put it uh, in place um, but I actually really love the select committee uh, work and, and you know obviously I'm still a member of the transport uh, committee despite not chairing it. Um, it it's a different you know it's a different sort of um, role and it, it and it's viewed quite differently. I, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're when you're doing um, media stuff uh, as a as a select committee chair, 
you have to be careful that you're representing the select committee and, and the cross-party view rather than a party uh, political view. I always felt that was really uh, important. Um, but it comes with an authority because, you know, people, people know that select committee reports are cross-party. They are largely uh, consensus and uh, they bring in vast amounts of of evidence in reaching your conclusions. In fact, they wouldn't have a value if they if they didn't. That so when we used to have uh, disputes on the on the committee about how where we were going to, you know, what our conclusions or recommendations would be, it was always for me. Like, well, let's go back to the evidence. What did the evidence um, tell us? Which I, you know, not that evidence doesn't, you know, form a basis of party uh, policy making. Obviously, it does too. But um, but it's a different sort of process. Um, and one of the, the most obvious differences uh, from a personal perspective is just the difference in resource uh, is when you become a shadow minister, suddenly you and your uh, hardworking parliamentary assistant have to become experts on whatever it is, buses, trains, aviation, maritime, whatever. Um, you, and, and, and as a select committee uh, chair, you are incredibly well supported with uh, a group of uh, very talented uh, people doing you know as, as you, you know the clerks uh, whether they're inquiry managers doing the research uh, obviously both cases you'd have access to the house of commons library um but you know press officer for the for the transport committee uh, you do feel incredibly uh, well supported in that role whereas being a, a shadow minister it can be well, it's very, very hard work with not that much resource. Um, and every time you stand up in the House to respond to a, a debate, whether it's in the Chamber or in Westminster Hall, um, you know, you're really conscious that the minister's sitting there with civil servants behind them who will have prepared them a draft speech and be handing them notes in response. And really, it's, um, you know, for shadow teams, it's really tough trying to trying to sort of match that with relatively few resources. Is that a weakness of the system? I never really thought about that. But I remember a few weeks ago, we talked to Andrew Adonis on this podcast. And he was talking about the fact that he felt it was a, an advantage to him that he'd come from the House of Lords, because he could focus on policy without having to deal with the politics um, that comes with being uh, in the House of Commons. And I never really thought about the fact that if you enter, let's say you'd won the 2015 election and gone into 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 the role of Transport Secretary, you'd suddenly be responsible for policy making. Um, therefore, you you kind of want that person to have had a big resource base. And we don't. I've never really thought about the fact we don't provide that role with the resources that maybe it does need. Is that is that a, is that a gap? Yeah, I do think uh, it is. And I remember thinking, you know, in in I'm not sure that this is a good example, but in in the United States, there's a there's a sort of budget. I can't remember what it's called now, but the opposition can kind of access um, support through. A, through an office that kind of will work up and help you to to cost alternative plans and we don't really have that system uh, in the UK I do think you know opposition is particularly hard um, and that's why you know obviously you rely on uh, lots of extra resources that you gain through well whether it's uh, think tanks or using the skills and expertise from stakeholders um, in order to help to help you to do uh, that role but uh, but you don't have anything on the, the same level as, um, you know, having the civil service behind you, which you do as a minister. So as a transport select committee chair, you probably have heard from more people with an interest in the sector than almost anyone else. And I suspect <laughs> more than the transport secretary, actually. Um, 
you know, looking at the people who come and see you and give evidence, you know, you, you hear from users, operators, you know, the, the full spectrum of people with an interest. If you had to try and consolidate three years worth of sitting <laughs> and listening to evidence into a few key points, what, 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 are, you, what are those things that you just kept hearing over and over and over again? Um, I think probably the key thing that we kept hearing over and over was the importance of um, having a, a longer term vision for where you want to go on transport. Um, and that came up a lot, which is that, you know, the enemy of, of achieving things in relation to transport, and obviously a lot of transport depends on local authorities uh, being able to implement things at, at local level, particularly in relation to bus and local roads, and walking and cycling, is that, you know, these bid for pots of money are the worst possible thing. So certainty of funding allows much more efficient and effective use of that funding. Um, and we heard it in relation to bus, we heard it in relation to active travel, we heard it in relation to the state and management of uh, of local roads um, and that feature and I remember because we did those three inquiries kind of one after the other uh, and that was very much a, a common thread um, and you know and maybe to some extent those things have been um, heard by government so you know when it comes to cycling and walking we do know what the allocation is for this um, parliament not necessarily how it's been distributed yet and there is now uh, a national bus strategy with a, a three billion pounds uh, allocated to it for this parliament so uh, some of that is starting to to break through um, I mean I think you know transport particularly because of the nature of the infrastructure it does require some of that longer term uh, thinking and you know sort of periods of boom and bust don't don't suit effective use of public expenditure when it comes to when it comes to transport and it is tough isn't it i mean i've never been a minister but i imagine if i was i'd much rather announce 20 lots of 2 million than one lot of 40 million and then leave other people to decide how to spend it and they get all the credit so given that how do we deal with this pot culture as i call it I don't know is the simple answer. I think, you know, we're getting there on some things. So obviously I, I, it's been a long time now that um, that network rails had five year control periods, which obviously should help uh, to make sure that there's a sort of smoothing uh, of the uh, of the allocation of funding, that they can plan ahead and that other parts of the industry can then respond to it. If you know what infrastructure is coming up in the next five years then the people who are bike procuring the trains know what's coming the people who are operating the services know the infrastructure they're operating on you could say the same um was true uh, for roads but in other aspects where we kind of going in the opposite direction where you get something like the leveling up fund which may be used for uh, things like transport infrastructure which you have to bid for it's limited you know and it has to deliver has to deliver before the end of the parliament now i can see why from the from a government point of view that's very attractive because you can go look we've delivered x by then but it doesn't really lend itself to longer you know where you need longer term thinking and planning the, the other bit i suppose is the attempt to take some of the politics out of these long-term decisions that inevitably span electoral cycles uh, and the national infrastructure commission is an attempt um 
to do that. But it, well, you can see some of the decisions that have had to be made. So there's been a sort of cross-party consensus on HS2 for the last 11 years, but it hasn't necessarily meant that there haven't been repeated stop-start reviews. There clearly uh, have been, and you know, and other projects have kind of been kicked into the long grass and then come back and then gone like Heathrow expansion. Um, so there's still there's still something to be done um, to address those issues. I wonder how. Are there any, do you know of any other countries or any other business sectors, any other department departments that have kind of dealt with this problem in a way that transport hasn't that that, that transport could learn from, or is it just there is no political will mm. to deal with it, therefore it won't be dealt with? Well, I think there's a recognition that it's an issue to be dealt with. I, I'm not sure we've necessarily got there yet. And, and obviously, there's that tension as well between um, between centralising decisions and devolving um, decisions to, um, you know, well, it seemed like we were going in the, that direction with the creation of things like transport for the north, but it hasn't. Yeah, there's still a bit of a tension there. Uh, and, and whereas in other, some you know, some other European countries, there's far more devolved decision making, um, and you know, local transport author or regional transport authorities have, or cities have, um, you know, tax raising powers, which for the most part, our, our cities don't, or where even where they potentially do, haven't used them. So an example, obviously, might be. Um, powers to to implement workplace parking levy which famously you know has happened here in nottingham but hasn't been attempted anywhere else yet although there's still quite a lot of talk about that and that's a way of you know generating funding to invest in in transport schemes i have been fascinated to know why that hasn't happened elsewhere because when it first happened in nottingham it seemed such a brilliant idea and it felt like Nottingham would be first and then there'd be a wave of this across the country generating transport income while at the same time making it, you know, creating a nudge for people to, 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 to shift across, which is perfect. And then Nottingham was first and last. Well, any idea why it hasn't happened elsewhere? I think it's politically very difficult to do <laughs> because people don't generally vote to pay more tax, which, I mean, it's, you know, it's a levy on employers who, on their workplace parking spaces, employers with 10 or more um, park free, you know, in their staff car park, so to speak. Um, so it wasn't uncontroversial. Um, I mean, I think, I, I, I hesitate to say it's not so controversial in Nottingham now because there are still lots of people who are quite, uh, you know, exercised by it. But having said that, you know, it, it has happened. It's been in place now for nine years, I think. Um, and of course it delivered, and improved to the railway station. It delivered two new lines of the Nottingham tram. Um, it supported for a long time uh, our link buses, although more recently some of those services have been uh, restructured. Um, but it but it is controversial, and, and I think I wonder whether you know because Nottingham's had a very stable political position. It is you know a very very Labour dominated city. A lot of those people who are paying the levy where their employers passed it on actually don't live in the city of Nottingham and don't vote in the city of Nottingham because we're a very tightly drawn local authority. So those might be particular circumstances that made it easier to do here than perhaps it would be in other places. But I think, you know, it was also only possible because Nottingham had a very clear vision about 
what it wanted to do on public transport and how it was going to uh, do it. And not every city has that clarity of um, of purpose. And so we we talked earlier about the fact that there's not enough long term thinking um, across the board. You know, you've got too many bids, pots for bid. Um, as opposed to long-term funding settlement. And you mentioned there that a lot of local authorities don't have the the, the vision either. Um, having both been a policy setter as Shadow Transport Secretary and as a scrutinizer in the in, in the Select Committee, can you give any thoughts as to what could be done to to, to encourage more long-term thinking? Um, and, and why isn't it there at the moment? Is it, a fa- is it just a facet of our political system? Um, or is there some other reason why? across the board that this doesn't seem to be that clarity of long-term vision in this area i think <sighs> what what so so i think in terms of local transport authorities um i mean obviously you know in many cases they've been they've been hollowed out a bit over the last 11 years mm. we were talking about it we had a session this morning about the national um, bus strategy and there's a recognition from central government that they need to provide capacity funding to ensure that local transport authorities are able to um, you know to develop bus service improvement uh, plans but it was almost like there wasn't any acknowledgement that it was austerity over the last 11 years that's precisely led to the position where we've got local authorities where they've lost that capacity it was you know this didn't happen by accident um, so you know, like stating the obvious is that thinking just any, you know, you need a bit of long-term thinking right from government about that that things that you do have long-term implications and might get in the way of future government's ability to uh, to enact policy change. Because obviously it was a, a conservative government or conservative-led government that, that made massive cuts to local authorities. And it's a conservative-led government that's now kind of saying, how how will we improve bus services? I mean, the other thing is, you know, a lot of talk about we, we want to have London-style bus services, we want to have flat fares and fully integrated. And it's just like, hang on, we've had a deregulated system everywhere outside London now for you know, since the mid 1980s, it's pretty obvious why it hasn't, why we've ended up in the situation that we have. Um, so I think, you know, some of it is just seeing what what are the long term implications of these policy changes, and and not and and recognising when they need to, you know, what can't just hope that they're going to change. You actually need to enact the differences that will enable them to change and and if you want local transport authorities to be able to you know to make changes is you have to give them the powers and the funding that they need and those two things go together and on on um you know for example on on bus which obviously is the biggest form most important form of public transport in many ways um is local authorities haven't had the powers successive governments labor and conservative have sort of said oh yes you should be able to do a bit more so you know that we have the idea of quality partnerships which never no one ever succeeded in setting one up uh, and now since 2017 they've been franchising powers but they're only available to mayoral uh, authorities and greater manchester four years on are at the point of deciding they're going to do it but it's slow it takes so long and there's a, and 
a lot of cases, you know, government are still holding on. So if you're not a mayoral combined authority, you have to get the Secretary of State's permission. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. Um, there has to be a willingness to allow local transport authorities to act and give them powers to do that. So your role is, is largely scrutinising government. And you, what you, your message to government is you know, more long-term vision, more long-term funding, and um, allow local authorities to be able to act independently. But of course, you also hear a lot of evidence from other people as well. And a lot of the listeners to the Freewheeling podcast are transport managers. So from the evidence you hear, what message will you give to to someone who runs a train or a bus company who's listening to this at the moment in terms of what the, 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 the sort of consolidated message you get from all your various witnesses? Oh, well, um, my heart goes out to people who are running uh, bus and train companies at the moment because obviously uh, the pandemic has, has really impacted them. I mean, you know, they, they've really been at the front line in lots of um, ways and, and particularly their, and obviously their, their staff, their drivers their customer services people who are um who have been working throughout the pandemic have been uh, incredible in continuing to provide those services and there's a real challenge now because obviously the number of people using those services is massively uh, depleted and i think in many cases the public are anxious and worried about returning to uh, their train or uh, the bus um and, and potentially, of course, that sets us back a long way uh, in terms of what we'd like to see, which is more people using public transport as an alternative to the car, which is necessary for a whole heap of reasons, but particularly to tackle, you know, climate change, air quality, congestion. Um, so I think for them, it, you know, I think they've got their work cut out for them. The government put a lot of time and effort over the last year to telling people that public transport isn't safe. Um, and the detail of the wording was pretty, was pretty, was reasonable. If you look on the, the, the gov.op website, it, it, it didn't say public transport's unsafe. But if you look at the, the, the adverts, the things that flashed up in people's social media feeds, and you have pictures of someone on a bus saying coronavirus catches the bus too, it very much gives the impression that bus and train is an unsafe environment. As the select committee, is that something you expect to be pushing back on to say we now need to do the opposite? We now need to tell people that it is safe? Because one of my worries is that there's going to be a lot less effort put into reversing that message when when the, when that time is right. And maybe it isn't now, maybe it is. But I, at some point, I worry it'll just be left and that, that stigma will be left hanging. Yeah, I think there's been a real concern. I mean, obviously, the, the reason for people not using public transport was really to create space for key workers um, so that people could social distance uh, on, on, you know, on public uh, transport. Although in, in the early phases of the, of the pandemic, clearly public transport workers themselves were at particular risk and the, and the government perhaps were, were, well, were too slow to, uh, to act to protect them. Um, but I think there is, a, there is a real risk that, that the message that the public have got is that it isn't safe to travel uh, on public transport, and it is absolutely vital that 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 message is, um, you know, that changes, and that people are encouraged to go back uh, onto public transport, and that they do feel that they're safe. It, it seems, you know, in terms of the evidence that we've heard as a committee, is that the evidence is that 
public transport is relatively safe, but people, you know, particularly relative to other indoor environments such as, uh, you know, pubs and restaurants and hospitality, um, although, you know, not, not to denigrate them either because they obviously work really hard to try and make the, those environments safe and to operate in a COVID-secure um, way. But definitely there needs to be uh, really real care with the messaging and it needs to be done in, in consultation and with uh, the operators and I know there are big plans to to try and to try and do that over the in the months uh, ahead because you know as many people have said there is a real danger of a car led recovery. A final question we, we're running out of time which is a real shame but final question um, transport and politics um, one of the things that always strikes me is the way trans transport secretary has the highest turnover of any government. Of any of any government department, transport secretaries last less than two years on average. Um, you were lined up to be transport secretary had Labour won the twenty fifteen election. So on average, you'd have been you'd have been moved on relatively quickly. Um, why do transport and politics seem to struggle in the way that they do as sectors? You know, I think you know, everyone agrees that the the Department of Health, you know, the NHS, is run by the government, and no one expects the government to make any decisions with regard to John Lewis. But somehow, transport—we never seem quite sure what the role of government is. Ministers turn over so frequently. Any any thoughts as to as to why that is? Uh, I think, I mean, in many ways, I think it's absolutely baffling because it's such an important one of the things I always feel about transport, which makes it really interesting area to work in is that almost every one of us, unless we never leave our house, which of course has been true in the last year, <laughs> um, is, you, you, you know, you encounter transport policy issues every single day, whether you're walking, whether you're cycling, whether you're getting in your car, whether you're taking public transport, is you'll be interacting with that infrastructure and those services. Um, and so people are concerned about it. Obviously, when I go out, you know, you know, talk to uh, constituents and you ask them about what's the what's the big issue around here you know it's very often you know the state of my local bus service or my potholes people's understanding of who runs those services or who's responsible for them is is often inaccurate I mean I've lost track of the number of times that people think that the council runs the bus services now in Nottingham maybe that's a bit more understandable because we have a municipal bus company but I think that's true across the country they can't kind of believe that the council doesn't have any influence or, or virtually no influence over um, the local bus uh, services. Um, but why is the role of, and obviously, you know, as transport ministers and tra the transport secretary have an enormous capital budget um, relative to other parts of, uh, of government, you know, it's been incredibly significant. I don't, so it's quite hard to understand why it's often seen as a stepping stone on the way up or, uh, the way down and actually it doesn't I, you know I don't think it's and that's probably true of all ministerial positions really is it isn't terribly helpful to have a constant uh, turnover because it takes a while to get your head around it doesn't it um, but that's probably true for any ministerial um, role not just transport. And fi final question from me, you have been relatively unusual in more or less specialising <laughs> in one policy area for a decade. That doesn't normally happen in politics. Was it complete fluke? You know, was it that you know, Mr Miliband phoned you in 2011 and offered you transport or had you always taken an interest in that sector and somehow he knew that? And are you going to continue in transport in some form long term or is it time for a change? Um, so I think... I I don't think it was a complete coincidence that um, that he asked me to join the transport team in 2011. 
because and the reason I got interested in transport in the first place, I didn't come into the House of Commons intending to be uh, an expert in an expert. I'm not that I'm claiming to be an expert to having, you know, to focusing on, on transport, particularly. It was because the very first things that happened in it, the new government did was to um, put on hold plans for a big uh, road improvement project in my constituency and to uh to put on hold the plans for the expansion of Nottingham's tram network. So that's how I kind of got involved. And that's why I uh, decided to, to try and join the Transport Select Committee back in 2010 when I got elected. So I think that's how, um, that's why I ended up joining the Shadow Transport team. Why I stayed there, um, I, I can't really uh, tell you the answer because obviously, you know, reshuffles are at the uh, the discretion of the uh, of the leader but I was very happy to stay doing transport and it takes quite a long time to get your head around it because it is complex um and uh, you know and I really uh, love it now of course I did have a break um when I joined the education select committee which I absolutely loved and really really enjoyed the work uh, doing that and that scrutiny and uh, obviously I'm really interested in it and transport isn't the only issue that I'm interested in and not the only issue that I'm involved in uh, in Parliament, but it, it does kind of get to you somehow, and it is quite difficult to to escape. And there, and there are still some really enormously important issues. So obviously, we did, I think, thirteen uh, reports over the time that I was the chair of the uh, Transport Committee. But there are many, many more issues that I want to uh, investigate. And of course, there are new things coming up uh, all the time. Whether the work we did, you know, we did a report recently on e-scooters we're doing stuff on smart motorways there's the transport decarbonization plan that we've been waiting for and waiting for that I want to sort of scrutinize you know there, there's no shortage of issues to be uh, to be concerned about and to be interested in and it's quite hard when you feel like you've built up a bit of knowledge to kind of get away from it really because why would you not want to ask questions of ministers when you you know when you see things that that prompt your irritation <laughs> <laughs> fantastic plenty more plenty more questions to ask i've no doubt lillian greenwood thank you so much for joining us on the freewheeling podcast thank you well that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week many thanks indeed to lillian greenwood former chair of the transport select committee my guest this week and to you for listening I'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you get a few minutes and feel like jumping onto the Apple Store and giving us a rate and review, that would be absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye.